0: UV, in the context of physics and the weather, is an acronym for ultraviolet radiation, which is present in sunlight and makes up a relatively small amount of the total electromagnetic radiation output of the sun about 10% of it most of the time. These figures vary quite a bit throughout the day, though, in different parts of the world, and depending on local weather conditions. But in general, a small portion of sunlight is ultraviolet in nature, and it's divided between UVA, UVB, and UVC types, which impact surfaces they strike in the atmosphere and down on the ground in somewhat different ways. UVA radiation plays a role in the formation of skin cancer in entities with skin, including humans, while also penetrating fairly deep into the skin, which is why it plays a significant role in skin aging and wrinkle formation alongside other skin changes. Very little UVA radiation is blocked by the atmosphere. UVB radiation plays a more substantial role in the development of skin cancers than UVA and is also responsible for sunburns, but fortunately, most of it, most of the time, is blocked by the atmosphere, though most can mean different things depending on the time of day, the weather, the altitude, and where you are in the world. There's also a UVC type of ultraviolet radiation, but fortunately, we don't really need to worry about this down on Earth as the atmosphere completely absorbs it. Sunlight generally carries about 500 times more UVA, the deep penetrating kind of UV, than UVB, which is kind of a good thing because UVB is a lot more likely to trigger the mutations that manifest as skin cancer, including the really gnarly, deadly kind, but both are not great for us in the sense that they can trigger cellular mutations, can cause painful burns, and tend to prematurely age our skin in a variety of ways that are generally not considered to be ideal for health and for aesthetic reasons. When we are provided a UV index by scientific or weather organizations or apps, this radiation is what's being measured. The U.S. National Weather Service, for instance, has a UV index that indicates how much UV radiation is likely to hit the surface of the planet in cities and regions across the country using a 0 to 15 ranking system. These numbers refer to the practical outcomes that can be expected as a result of surface of the planet UV radiation, so a 0 to 2 refers to a low-risk situation in which it will take something like an hour to burn if you're outside in full sunlight, unprotected from UV rays. A rating of 10 to 15, on the other hand, refers to a high-risk situation in which it'll only take about 10 minutes to burn, and serious precautions are recommended to avoid even worse outcomes. In such high-risk situations, multiple radiation defenses are generally recommended, including clothing that covers as much skin as possible and which doesn't allow much or any UV radiation through, alongside hats, sunglasses, and umbrellas. In all cases, though, including many low-risk situations, most weather services and medical organizations also recommend some type of sunscreen. Sunscreen, sometimes called sunblock or sun cream, depending on where you live in the world, has existed in its modern form since around 1932, though cultures globally have been blocking UV rays with some success using all sorts of substances from pretty much the beginning of recorded history we have shaded ourselves and slathered our skin in pretty much anything we could get our hands on to avoid negative UV-related outcomes from the beginning of time, as far as we can tell. The original 1932 formula for a modern sunscreen, though, which was developed by an Australian chemist named H.A. Milton Blake, before going on to be mass-produced by Blake's company, Hamilton Laboratory, used a substance called phenyl salicylate as a UV filter. And a few years before and after that development, an experimental proof showing an association between UV radiation and skin cancer was published, and the eventual founder of L'Oreal developed a tanning oil that partially filtered some UV radiation. Over the next few decades, a slew of chemists developed their own sunscreen-like substances. The U.S. Army Air Force invested in a study that concluded that dark red veterinary petroleum, which was later marketed as a product called Red Vet Pet, was the optimal sunscreen for the military's purpose which was then improved a bit and mass-produced in the 1950s as Coppertone and Bain de Soleil. And in the mid-1970s, another Australian chemist adopted and added to some earlier calculations to develop the SPF, Global Standard, for UVB protection. And again, UVB is the more skin cancer and sunburn-causing type of UV radiation. It's been estimated that some of these earlier sunscreen formulations, including those that emerged a bit later in the second half of the 20th century, had an SPF of about 2. What I'd like to talk about today is the modern sunscreen market and why, despite playing a significant role in the development of such products, the U.S. is quite a bit behind most other countries when it comes to this particular product category. Listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Atlantic, and it's entitled, You're Not Allowed to Have the Best Sunscreens in the World. The U in that headline is Americans, residents of the United States, and the why behind that inability to get the best sunscreens in the world is tied to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration's approach to regulating the sunscreen industry. Before we get into that, though, let's rewind back to the latter half of the 20th century when, in the late 1970s, water-resistant sunscreens, which had been under development since the mid-1960s, began to come onto the market. That innovation increased the number of use cases for sunscreen, including use while swimming or playing sports. And it arrived around the same time that some sunscreen formulations were being banned because of negative effects that they could have on human health. Which also happened around the same time that SPF was formally adopted by a slew of countries and regulatory bodies tasked with testing sunscreen products around the world. And when some new UV-blocking substances like octyl triazone, were becoming the go-to standard for UVA protection, while octyl methoxycinnamate was used for UVB protection. Tanning beds were also becoming common and popular across the U.S. and some other countries at this time, and it wasn't until 2007 that the International Agency for Research on Cancer published a study that confirmed the connection between tanning beds and all sorts of skin cancer, including melanoma, the most serious type. So those remained popular for quite a while there. There were some early studies around the same time suggesting that two sunscreen ingredients, oxybenzone and octinoxate, might cause coral bleaching, which basically weakens coral reef ecosystems by killing or running off fundamental components of those ecosystems. And about a decade later in 2018, Hawaii became the first U.S. state to ban the sale of sunscreens containing these two ingredients, a ban that finally went into effect in 2021. Other research during that decade suggested that other UV-blocking substances could also lead to coral bleaching, including zinc oxide, which is a popular physical sunscreen ingredient. Physical sunscreen is the somewhat misleading but common term for inorganic sunscreen, which makes use of substances like zinc oxide and titanium dioxide to absorb UV radiation, which is in contrast to organic sunscreens, which are commonly but also somewhat misleadingly often called chemical sunscreens, which are more likely to utilize the aforementioned oxybenzone, octanoxate, and other such substances for UV absorption purposes. Interestingly, while a lot of marketing materials aim to differentiate the two by saying inorganic sunscreens block or scatter light while organic sunscreens absorb it, research has shown that both actually absorb rather than reflect as their primary feature, and the main differentiation is where on or in the skin the substance sits while it does this absorbing. Some relatively recent research by the FDA indicates that some of those organic substances can be detected in users' skin, blood, urine, and breast milk even weeks after sunscreen is applied. And there's reason to believe that these substances might be linked to some types of cancer as well. But the American Cancer Society continues to recommend that people use sunscreen of whatever type works best for them, because of how well it protects against various skin cancers, which they consider to be the bigger threat at this point, based on the evidence we currently have. Research also shows that regular use of sunscreen can slow the development of wrinkles and saggy skin in people with some mostly lighter Skin types. And another, far smaller study suggests that the use of SPF 30 or higher sunscreen every day for about three months can reverse photoaging impacts on the skin, so wrinkles and sagging and such, for up to one year. But on the other hand, there's a chance that both major types of sunscreen are sticking around in our bodies way past when we use them that there may be causing adverse effects, including maybe small cancer risks, that some people are allergic to ingredients used in sunscreen, including the filler substances used to make it waterproof and to allow it to come in cream and spray and other form factors. And there are increasing concerns that the application of sunscreen over prolonged periods may lead to vitamin D deficiencies, which is not something folks who use it casually and semi-regularly would need to worry about, but could be an issue for those who are especially assiduous in their sunscreen application each day which is actually what's recommended by most skin and cancer experts right now. All of which is to say this is a tricky space, in part because it can sometimes be difficult to separate marketing claims from real-deal scientific data in part because there are a lot of different substances involved used for a variety of purposes in these products, and many of them prevent bad things while also potentially sparking or amplifying other bad things. And in part because the use of sunscreen is so varied from person to person and region to region, it's difficult to know which learnings apply to which part of the world and which people with which attributes. A lot of what we think we know may be applicable to one group or even one person, but not their neighbor, or the folks living a few degrees latitude further north. It's also estimated that around 6,000 to 14,000 tons of sunscreen seep their way into coral reef areas each year, and the mixed consequences of this seepage from reef to reef and region to region are likewise throwing up all sorts of at times conflicting signals about what's doing what, why, and how. Adding to that complexity is the mix of regulatory rules, many of which have slowly coalesced around what we might think of as the international model, established and reinforced by regulatory bodies primarily located in Europe and parts of Asia, and a few of which are closer to what we might call the U.S. model, which primarily exists in the United States, but which is also shared by a few other countries that use the U.S. FDA's rulings as a guide for their own regulatory establishments. The FDA is the agency that tests products and substances to determine whether or not they're safe for U.S. consumers. So there was a time before the FDA and its precursor agencies when just about anything could be sold to anyone, and the folks selling it could claim anything they wanted about their products. And there wasn't much that could be done about this other than maybe forming a posse and running these conmen out of town if they killed or maimed too many people with their harmful snake oil. These days, although the system is far from perfect, you're a lot less likely to be hurt by something that you purchase in the United States, and a lot less likely to spend your money on snake oil that doesn't do anything if the thing you're buying is in a category that's regulated by the FDA. The downside of such a system is that it slows down development and production of such products and substances, sometimes for years or decades. This is the consequence of both bureaucratic sluggishness and an abundance of caution on the part of the FDA. They don't want to say no to something potentially good and beneficial, but they also don't want to put something poisonous or otherwise harmful on the market, as it's basically their job to filter exactly those sorts of things out. So the push-pull effect of this agency is similar to any other filter in that it slows down passage but also weeds out a bunch of otherwise potentially harmful or fraudulent stuff. And there's a lot of pros and cons to this. The FDA has currently, as of 2022, provided approval for 17 UV filtering substances on the American market nine of which aren't really used very often because of weird side effects, because there's better options, or because of chemical peculiarities that make them tricky to incorporate into a marketable cream or spray that folks will actually want to apply to their skin. The remaining eight are all pretty decent, with flaws ranging from the aforementioned potential eco-unfriendliness to a whitish cast that they can lend to the wearer's skin, which makes those wearers look like ghosts, or alternatively, a greasiness that can be uncomfortable or undesirable for similar aesthetic reasons. These downsides tend to become more prominent as SPF levels are increased, typically because higher SPF levels, higher levels of UV absorption, require higher concentrations of these substances. None of which is a huge deal if you're wearing sunscreen just while on vacation or on periodic visits to the pool. But it's less ideal when you're trying to incorporate these sorts of things into everyday products that are meant to be put on every morning, as is increasingly the case with an array of lotions and creams and lip balms and other such health and beauty products that now commonly incorporate some level of SPF protection. And again, such daily application is what is currently recommended by most medical establishment folks because of the protection such substances offer against all sorts of skin maladies, including cancers. Outside of the U.S., though, especially in Europe, Australia, and parts of Asia, regulatory bodies consider these substances to be cosmetic or health-boosting products, not medical products and they thus pass through regulatory hurdles in these areas more rapidly and are prone to fewer rejections for pharmaceutical-related issues that may not actually or completely apply to sunscreens in the first place. Consequently, these non US markets have products based on dozens of UV filtering substances that are not available in the US, and quite a few of them are of a high enough quality compared to US based offerings that Americans have been going out of their way and paying high prices to buy them from foreign companies, Korean and Japanese beauty products in particular, bypassing FDA regulations to get their hands on the good stuff. Two of the most popular of these available outside the U.S. filters are Bemotrizinol and bisoc both of which absorb into the skin better than current U.S. options, and the latter of which degrades more slowly in sunlight so it doesn't have to be reapplied as often and can even help stabilize other filtering substances and is thus often combined with other substances in order to increase SPF efficacy. There have been efforts from the companies making these products and within the U.S. Congress to speed up the approval for UV filtering substances, so more of them, both sunscreens and beauty products containing SPF lending chemicals, can be made available on the U.S. market. Efforts by L'Oreal in 2006 only resulted in a few new beauty products with these sorts of chemical filters on the U.S. market, though. And a law passed by Congress in 2014 meant to fast-track the approval process for these sorts of ingredients has yet to have an impact. There are eight of them. Up for consideration by the FDA at the moment but all are stalled at various stages of that process in most cases because the companies seeking that approval are unable to provide data requested by the FDA. Data that, it's been argued, makes sense for pharmaceutical products and the approval of such products but make less sense for this type of product category. What we have here then is a trade-off that is currently biased in favor of the FDA's first do-no-harm approach to allowing things or not allowing things on the U.S. market. Many members of the medical community right now are frustrated with this prioritization, as although there are potential flaws with all of these potential new and existing currently on the market SPF-granting substances, all have been shown to be base-level safe for human use when used as directed. None of them should be chugged or otherwise digested, but all have been shown to be okay at normal levels when applied to skin, and all would help prevent skin cancer, which statistically is the much bigger concern if you're just looking at raw medical numbers. One more point worth mentioning here is that newer research from the 2010s and early 2020s suggests that high-energy visible light and infrared light from the sun may also contribute the damage caused to skin, either individually or by working synergistically with UV radiation. So these other wavelengths might also contribute to cancer, wrinkles, loss of skin elasticity, and other sorts of damage. There are not, as of 2021 at least, any regulatory guidelines for testing substances that claim to protect against high-energy visible and infrared light. And because the FDA only currently recognizes protection against sunburn, and skin cancer as medical issues over which they have jurisdiction, there's a chance substances claiming to defend against these other types of light could slide through regulatory hurdles more rapidly, making their way into products, perhaps even before those aforementioned UV filtering ingredients that have long been enjoyed in much of the rest of the world, but not in the US. Though, Of course, that also means these substances could suffer the downsides of non or lesser regulation which means they could be hindered by the same sorts of false and inflated claims that pervade the vitamin, holistic health, and larger beauty product industries, among many others today. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Heroine with 1001 Faces by Maria Tatar. The author of this book is an expert on mythology and fairy tales, and the book is a spin on the traditional concept of the hero with a thousand faces and the idea that there is a template that's used throughout mythology and fairy tales and folklore throughout human history that illustrates who is a hero and who is a villain, among other things. This book looks at some other templates that can be used with more traditionally feminine or female heroines, as opposed to the traditional masculine male hero and how some of these heroine figures have been treated and often mistreated in different types of stories that we tell, and how in some cases these feminine heroic figures, because their heroism is demonstrated in different ways, exist within these stories that we tell in folklore and books and movies and everything else, but in a different shape and one that we might overlook because we're not looking for those particular attributes. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Heroine with 1001 Faces by Maria Tatar. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a portfolio of my other work, including my other podcasts, at Understandry.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.